Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. We're continuing our study of false teachers and false prophets from the book of Jude. If you take your bulletin, I've provided a place in there outlined for you to take notes. The danger of false teachers is no trivial matter. And that's why we're spending so many weeks looking at this subject. Because God over and over again in His Word warns us about false teachers. Moses warned us about false teachers. Jeremiah warned us about false teachers. Isaiah warned us about false teachers. Ezekiel warned us about false teachers. Our own Lord Jesus himself warned us about false teachers. In fact, in the end times discourse that Jesus gave as recorded in Matthew 24, twice in that single discourse, Jesus warns us against false teachers. The first time is in verse 11 when he says, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And then again, in verse 24, he says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if, if possible, even the elect. Paul also warned us about false teachers over in Titus chapter 1. He says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not, they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And so the scripture clearly warns us over and over again about false teachers, and so it is with Jude. As we look in his letter, verse 11. Now there are three characteristics of false teachers that Jude gives five times in these 25 verses. Today we're going to see the fourth time that he warns us against false teachers. Now stand in respect for the word of God and let me read verse 11. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. You may be seated. And what we have today is that we have Jude going back into the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament he is giving us three examples of, of the characteristics of these false teachers. He tells us, first of all, when he mentions the way of Cain, he talks about their unbelief. Secondly, when he talks about they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, he is talking about their their greed and indulgence of fleshly desires. And then fourthly, When he talks about Korah, he is talking about their rebellious spirit. 
First, let me see their denunciation. He says, woe to them. Now, God reserves this word woe for the, some of the strongest, most severe pronouncement of judgment on His false prophets and on those in, on whom He is placing His judgment. This is one of the strongest terms in Scripture for judgment and denunciation. It is a very strong word of reproach. It's a pronouncement of severe judgment and condemnation. In the Old Testament, we read the prophets who are pronouncing God's judgment and wrath on Israel and their sinfulness, on pagan nations and their sinfulness. They'll start their message with, Woe unto! And in the New Testament, we find this woe, this word of severe judgment, most on the lips of our Lord Jesus, which may seem surprising to you. But Jesus reserved this severe judgment and condemnation on those like the cities of Chorazon and Bethsaida and Capernaum, when he spoke over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, he says, Woe to you, Chorazon! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they had, would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus is pronouncing a word of judgment on these cities because they had seen his miracles. They had had the Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God, visit them, perform His miracles, do His teachings, and yet they had remained in their stubbornness and unrepentant hearts. And Jesus says, if Tyre and Sodom, these two Gentile cities, had seen the miracles that you have seen, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. He goes on to tell Capernaum, because they would not repent at such great revelation of the Son of God, he says it will be more tolerable for Sodom than it will be for Capernaum in the day of judgment. Jesus also pronounced this woe on those who cause others to sin. He says over in Matthew 18, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Jesus said it would have been better if a millstone had been placed around his neck and he had been thrown into the sea. Woe to those who cause others to sin. He also says and reserves this strong condemnation for the scribes and Pharisees who again rejected the truth of Jesus. In fact, over in Matthew 23, seven woes. Jesus places on the scribes and the Pharisees. I'll just pick one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Oh, they look so religious on the outside. They do all these things. They give all these offerings. They say all these prayers but in their hearts they're nothing but rottenness and decay. And Jesus pronounced his woe upon them. 
Jesus pronounced this strong condemnation on the one who betrayed him as well. We read in Matthew 26, The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. So this is a very strong word of denunciation and condemnation and judgment. And here God reserves it for the false teachers when he says in verse 11, Woe unto them. Now there are three reasons that he brings such condemnation upon them. And we will see each of those. The same three we have seen already three other times. You remember the first characteristic? Their unbelief or their disbelief. Their unbelief or their disbelief. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Now, if you're going to understand the way of Cain, then we have got to go back and look over in Genesis chapter 4, where we read about Cain and Abel. Now, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. And we read in Genesis 4, beginning in verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So what we see happening here is that God told Cain and Abel, Cain was a farmer, Abel kept flocks, and God said for them to bring an offering to him. Now he told them what to do. But Abel followed God's advice, but Cain did not follow God's way. Cain came his own way, and because of that, God rejected his offering. The word have no regard for, there means, means not to approve of. He had no interest in. Now if we only had the Genesis passage to try to figure out what was going on here, we might be in trouble. But God helps us over in Hebrews chapter 11. We're told why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. By faith. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And through it, he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts that through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. What was the difference? Abel offered his sacrifice in faith. Cain did not. Faith is to act on what God has said. Faith is to believe God and therefore act in obedience to God. And so what we can determine is that God told them how He would accept their sacrifice, what they needed to do, how they needed to come to Him in order to have their sacrifices accepted. Abel believed God and he came God's way. But Cain decided he would come his way rather than God's way. 
He could well have reasoned, well, my crops are the best crops. I will give the best of my crops. I've worked hard. I've labored over them. They will represent me better than anything else. I will come and bring these to God. But it didn't come God's way. And God rejected his offering. So what is the way of Cain? It's the way of works righteousness trying to earn God's acceptance on your terms. The way of Cain is the opposite of faith righteousness. The Bible says we can do nothing to earn God's acceptance, to earn His approval. And faith says, I come accepting what God has accomplished through Jesus. Simply believing in Christ, placing my complete confidence in Him. And God says, I declare you righteous. Works righteousness says, well, I've got to do something. Uh, I can't just, just come empty-handed. I've got to do something. I have got to be good enough. I in some way must do something to earn and merit God's forgiveness, to merit salvation. And so the way of Cain is the way of works righteousness, trying to add to what God has done. And Jude says these false teachers are guilty of this very thing. They disbelieve God's way of faith righteousness. And instead they are trying to add to it or bring something to God. They deny that God's done everything necessary in Jesus Christ to accomplish our redemption and salvation. They deny the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. They deny that salvation is by grace through faith alone and not a result of man's works. The acid test that you need to put to any teacher, any preacher, is this. What must I do to go to heaven? Anything other than believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. Anything more than that is a false gospel. You see, the false teachers will say faith plus something else. And it's the plus that's wrong. That's the works. Now, it's very, they're very tricky, very sneaky. You've got to know what to ask or you'll miss it. You go up to a Mormon, Latter-day Saints, and you say... Uh, do you believe in salvation through faith in Jesus? You know what they're going to say? Yeah, we believe that. And if you just stop right there, you don't have the whole story. You've got to follow with another question. Is faith in Jesus all that's needed to be saved? And they're going to come back and say, no, you've got to be baptized and you've got to follow the commandments. You see, it's always faith plus. Never just faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that faith in Jesus alone is not enough. Now, if you ask them, is faith come through, the salvation come through faith in Jesus? They're going to probably say yes, but you've got to press it on. Is there anything else I must do? Oh, well, yeah, you've got to take Holy Communion, and, and uh, you've got to be baptized, and, uh, and you've got to come to confession. And See, it's faith plus. False Teachers reject God's divine accomplishment 
in salvation. And they supplant it with man's achievement, what man must do. Islam, it's no salvation by grace, it's salvation by works. And you've got to follow the five pilgrim, five columns of Islam. You've got to make a pilgrimage. You need to give alms. Uh, you've got to have your prayers. That's why they say those five prayers all during the day. It is a works salvation. Anything other than salvation through faith alone is a false gospel and is a disbelief in the Word of God. Now, Robert Tilton, I mentioned him I think it was last week. Uh, he is again come out of the ashes in his own TV. And he teaches salvation through giving money to him. Now that's not Robert Tilton there, but uh, listen to Robert Tilton. He tells this story about this woman named Mary. He says, after Mary committed her life to Christ, she sold a vow. Now that's his code for she gave money into the work of God for her family to get saved. All right, so you give money, so that vow, that seed, and God will save your family. To date, he says, 12 of Mary's family members have been saved and are serving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Furthermore, he goes on to list the seven steps of faith. Now, I'm going to give you the first four. Step one, let God know what you need from Him. A new car, a new job, fitness, house, finances, salvation. Right, you come to God and you say, God, I need salvation. Step two. Give God your best gift. Now he's talking about money. Okay, Give God your best gift. Give Him all the money you can give Him. Step three. Pray the prayer of agreement. Take the prayer sheet I've enclosed and lay your hand on top of mine. It's a photograph of his hand. And pray. Say, oh God, I pray in agreement right now. In my, now with my brother Bob. By faith we decree my miracle into existence in the name of Jesus. Father, I'm giving my best gift to you today. Therefore we ask that you rebuke the devil from my life according to Malachi 3, amen. Step 4. Mail your prayer request and your gift back to me today. You'll be saved. Or, they redefine the gospel. They so twist the meaning of scripture that the gospel they proclaim is not a gospel at all. Now we get to Robert Schuller, The late Robert Schuller, I might add. But since his books are still out there... I feel I need to deal with him. He has totally refined all the terms of the Christian gospel. You know how he defines sin? He said, sin is any act or thought that robs myself or another of his or her self-esteem. He says, the core of sin is a lack of self-esteem. Now, my Bible tells me that sin is a transgression against a holy God and his law, and the problem is not a lack of self-esteem, but my problem is too much self-esteem. Pride is the root of sin. This is how he defines salvation. To be born again 
means that we must be changed from a negative to a positive self-image. That's what salvation is. Now, my Bible tells me salvation is repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and a new life in Him. That's one thing that's so dangerous about the word of faith movement is that they're giving a false gospel. They're saying if you come to Jesus, He'll make you wealthy and heal you of all your sickness. You mean to tell me if I come and invite Jesus into my heart that I won't be sick anymore and He'll make me wealthy? They say, yeah. That's what it's all about. Well, who wouldn't want that? I mean, most people want to be wealthy and very few people want to be sick. So if I can promise you that you come to Jesus and you'll never have to be sick again and you'll be wealthy, who would turn that away? But the problem is, it feeds into the very core of our selfishness. Our own selfish desires. The pride of life and the lust of the flesh. We want things. We want to be satisfied. We want what we want. And in so doing, they're perverting the gospel. My Bible says, come to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That means I want His will, not my will. I'm to serve Him. It's not His job to serve me and make me rich. So it's a false gospel. Joel Osteen, who it says pastors the largest church in, in I think, the world, clearly in the United States, and I would think probably in the world. Now his best-selling book is Your Best Life Yet. Now, first of all, if this is your best life, if this is your best life, excuse me, your best life now, if this is your best life now, the only way that can be true is if you're going to hell. Right? I mean, that's the only way this can be your best life. But that's what his name of his book is, Your Best Life Now. And he says in this book that anyone can create by faith and words the dreams he desires. Health, wealth, happiness, and success. Now, here's a couple of quotes from the book, Your Best Life Now. He says, quote, If you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. End quote. There's another quote. Before we were formed... He prepared us to live abundant lives, to be happy, to be healthy, and to be whole. Health, wealth, happiness, prosperity. That's the promise of their gospel. But you know what Paul said over in Timothy? Paul says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Scripture warns against wanting to get rich and seeking wealth above everything else. 
But you can see why so many people flock to these to these places, and I don't even want to call them churches, flock to these gatherings because they're promising wealth, health, success, happiness. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. And that was an instrument of death. And follow me. Self-sacrifice. So the false prophets disbelieve God's word because they believe in a works righteousness, and they so twist the gospel that it is not the gospel at all. Now the second characteristic, they are denounced for their greed and compromise. Again in verse 11, And for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam. For pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam. The scripture warns us about the greed of false prophets. One of their main motivations is money and greed. Over in 2 Peter chapter 2, look at what Peter says. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. The false prophets, teacher, the false prophet, their motivation is not their love for God. It's not their love for people. It's not their desire to be obedient to God, but their main desire is their greed, their desire for money. They want to be rich. Hilton said, mail your gift back to me today. Jeremiah talked about this in his book. In his day, he said, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet to the priest... Everyone deals falsely. Why? So they can have gain. So they can get money. In 2 Peter 2, 3, again, Peter mentions, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. So for greed, they will exploit you with their false words. Peter Popoff. I don't know how many of you remember him, but he's back. Again, like a bad penny, they keep showing up. Back in 1986, man, he had this great blowing, going ministry where people would come, I mean, stadiums would fill up, and he in front of the audience would go up to someone and he would tell their name. They hadn't talked to him. He'd tell their name. He'd tell where they were from. He would tell what their problems were. I mean, he would just mystify the congregations that were gathered with his words of knowledge. Well, investigative reporter decided to look into this. And back in those days, the little earpieces that people put in their ears were not very common, so people were not familiar with them. Well, this investigator got a radio that he could move different frequencies to hear things. Well, he found this frequency where Peter Popoff's wife was feeding him this information into his earpiece in his ear that he was saying to the audience like he was getting it from God. And it was exposed on TV, and they even had an overlay of of the program where he was giving these words of knowledge, and they had his wife. You could hear her saying the person's name and repeating it, and he would say, Your name is... And she'd say, he's from so, she's from so-and-so. And he'd say, and you're from, and give the place. And, of course, when this came out, 
this just destroyed his ministry. He ended up going bankrupt a year later. He's back. He's back. I couldn't believe it, but I went on the internet and he's back. What's he selling now? Miracle water. Let's see our slide. Oh, keep going. All right. Miracle water. Here it is. All right. Miracle water. <sighs> Mail it. Send it in. Do what he says. And you will see miracles in your life. All right, next slide. All right, this is an actual letter. I hope you can see it. This is a letter that goes out with this miracle water. You call in, he sends you the miracle water. But then he says, now you, but you've got to follow the instructions to the letter, though, that I send you. You've got to follow them exactly because they come from God. All right, so here we have it. All right, this is not the amount I came up with. God's in this. All right, so here's what he says. I am led of God to ask you for a seed gift of $20 now. If that's impossible, and I mean you can in no way do that, so at least $15. And look what he says in, in bold. You can't come before God with empty hands. Now, remove your shoes and socks, anoint your right foot with this holy anointed miracle spring water, and follow the instructions on the page with my foot, Exactly, put your foot exactly on my foot. And then you trace it, and then you got to send it back to him that day. That day. Don't wait. That day. Now, he changes this occasionally. He'll change it. All right, so now he says, if you'll send me uh, $17.11, that's your seed faith, that will release 1 Kings 17.11 into your life, which was where Elijah went to the lady that didn't have a little oil, and he says, bake for me, and God will continue to provide oil for you, and she did. Well, he says, if you will give $17.11, send it right into me, then you will sow that seed faith, and God will multiply miracles back to you. I mean, up and above this letter, he talks about how God uses water. This water came from the springs in Russia. It was used actually to heal people at Chernobyl, he says. Also, he says that God's always has used many times waters in the scriptures to bring about a miracle. Did you know that in the jawbone of the ass that Samson took and, and, and able to kill so many Philistines, water came out of that jawbone? That's what Popoff says. The Bible doesn't say that, but that's what Popoff says. So you take this little packet of water. And then he also sometimes he and then he said, but if you are really in dire straits, if you're really hard up and you're in a tight place, you need to send $117.11 to release God's power in your life. And every time he sends a letter, he got some more stuff for you to do, and it always involves sending back that money to him. One of the uh, side schemes is he gives us a packet of salt comes with the miracle water, and this salt is from the Dead Sea, he says. Now, a laboratory tested his salt. It's no different than the table salt you get on in the in the in the restaurants. But he said, now you take this table salt and you do exactly like I'm telling you. You take out a check and write a check for $27 and you sprinkle that table salt 
on that check and you agree with me, God's going to bless you and multiply back to you and then mail that check back that day. I mean, these letters are just masterful arts of manipulation. I mean, it's always saying, do this, do this, and then you must mail it back exactly today. One thing he says, put under your pillow and sleep over it during the night, and after you have awoken that morning, first thing, cut the packet of miracle water and drink it. And then send the $17.11 that day. That day. Well, you say, is he having any success with that stuff? Do people really believe that? Let's see the next slide. Well, his 2005 tax return showed $23 million in receipts. He paid himself a salary of $600,000. He paid his wife uh, and two kids about $600,000 as well. He drives a $100,000 Porsche. He lives in a $2.1 million mansion. So you tell me, do people believe his stuff? Are people doing this stuff? Yes. Now, go back to Earl Paul and John Jimenez. Now, Earl's not with us anymore, but he related a story back in the day when John Jimenez, pastor of the Rock Church at that time, somebody was challenging him about how much money he was making as a pastor. And so he went to Earl Polk, and Earl Polk said, well, you just go to Scriptures and you look up the tithe. So he went to the Scriptures, he looked up the tithe, they got back in two weeks. And Earl said, you found, didn't you, that the tithe, the tithe is to do is to go to the ministers of the church. The offerings should care for everything else. And Paul said that John looked at him with tears in his eyes, and he said, that's going to be over a million dollars a year. Now, I think a laborer is worthy of his wages. But I have a hard time figuring a million dollars a year fits into that. The Bible says feed the flock, not fleece the flock. But the false teachers won't, they won't gain, they want money, they're greedy, they want material possessions. That's their heart's desire. And then he says the compromise of the era of Balaam is not only to do it for money, but also to compromise the standards of God's Word in order to make it more attractive to people. You go back in the Old Testament, Numbers 22, you'll see the story there about this man Balaam who was not an Israelite, but it seemed in some measure he had a prophetic gift. Well, the king Balak of Moab went to him and said, I'm afraid of the Israelites. I want you to curse them. Well, he said, I can't curse them. He said, I can only say what God tells me to say. I can't curse them. Well, three times he kept trying to get him to curse them. And he said, I can't do it. I can only do what God tells me to do. And he never cursed them. But you know what Balaam did for money? He went to the king of Moab and he says, I can't, I can't curse them, but I can tell you another way to get God to punish them. Take your young girls and send them out to entice and seduce the Hebrew guys and tell them to come back and be a part of this worship of your false gods which involves immorality. 
And so the king of Moab did that. These girls went out, seduced the Hebrew guys. Indeed, God's judgment came on them because of this, and 24,000 were killed. Now, what's the error of Balaam? The error of Balaam is trying to lower the holy standards of God so that it's more appealing to the world. Compromise the high standards of God so that it's more palatable. Remove the sacrifice and the self-denial of Christianity and make it appealing to people. Don't tell them come and die. Tell them come and get rich. Make it appealing. Make it so everybody come. You see, if I want money, then I'm going to try to do all I can to get as many people here as I can because the more people I get here, the more money you're going to give. Right? So I'm not going to say anything's going to drive you away. I'm not going to tell you you're a sinner and you need the grace of God to forgive you of your sins and then you need to walk in holiness and you need to die to your self-life and you need to live for Christ. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to say, you're good. You're good like you are. You just need to get in and love God and He'll make you rich and He'll make you healthy and we're just going to, have, we're going to be happy. We're just going to have a good time together. We're just going to rejoice and be happy and sing happy songs and jump around and it's just going to be fun. Get a big crowd. Now, you've got to plant that seed. Faith, though. Show God how much you... You can't come to God empty-handed now. Now, I always say, why don't they send me money? I mean, they always want me to send them money. Why don't they send me money? And let God multiply back to them, right? I think they're the only ones getting rich in this situation. All right, look at this. Tell me which is more attractive to the masses. Kenneth Hagin says... God wants His children to wear the best clothes, to drive the best cars, to have the best of everything. Too few people today know they can write their own ticket with God. Or the words of Jesus. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, which one of those is going to... Appeal to the masses. Kenneth Hagin said, Lord told me don't pray for money anymore. You have the authority in my name to claim prosperity. Or the words of Jesus. He who loves his life for my sake shall... Excuse me. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it. He who keeps his life will lose it. Which one of those was more attractive to the masses? False teachers offer this false truth because they want to get more people to come in so they can get more offerings and they'll have more money. You cannot have God and worldliness both. You've got to make a choice. Either serve God or serve your money. You can't serve both. Serve God in His kingdom or serve this world and have your dreams and desires of worldly things fulfilled. So first of all, they go the way of Cain, which is the way of works righteousness. Faith alone is not enough. You've got to add to it something else to be saved. Secondly, in their greed, they seek money. Their main motivation is to get rich. The third characteristic is their rebellion. Verse 11. 
and perish in the rebellion of Korah. We've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand this illustration as well. Number 16. There was a man named Korah who was a Levite. That meant he was responsible for setting up the tabernacle, taking it down. Now, they were not priests, but they were of the priestly family. Well, it seems like Korah and, and, and Datham and uh, another couple of guys decided they wanted the leadership. There's no reason that Moses and Aaron should be the leaders. They ought to be. They were just as good as they were. And so they challenged Moses and Aaron's leadership and said, Who has said you can only one that can serve as leader? We want to be leaders as well. Well, God didn't take too kindly to that. And so eventually God said, Okay, bring them all together. And if God and Moses said, if God does something that's never happened before, then you'll know he's chosen us to be leaders. If he doesn't, then he hadn't. So God said, bring them all out in the middle of the camp. So they brought them out. And then God said, tell everybody else to get away from them. Now, folks, if I was out there and I heard that, get away from them. And then God split the earth wide open, and they all fell in, Dantham and and Abarim and uh, Korah and their families. And then God sent fire down and killed the 250 that had joined them in the rebellion. But Jude says these false prophets also reject God's authority. Just like God had placed Aaron and Moses to lead, and they rejected that, God has placed authorities in our lives. And when we reject those authorities, God says we are rejecting His authority, and we're rejecting His order. And it seems that these false teachers in Jude's day were were rejecting the authority of the apostles, of Peter, of Paul, of James. And they were coming in and making themselves the authority, saying that their gospel was the true gospel, and the gospel of Paul and Peter was a false gospel. Also, they were rebelling against the established teachings of the church. Now, we see the same thing going on with the false teachers today. First of all, they're rebelling against God's order for the church. Now, God chose to place men in the spiritual leadership in the church. This is clear from the Old Testament. It's clear from the New Testament. God has designed for men to be pastors, to head the congregation. It's nothing against ladies, it's just not God's order. But man, these false teachers, they don't mind taking on this apostleship. They don't mind calling themselves apostles. They don't mind being pastors of churches. Paula White, on her website, calls herself the senior pastor of her church. Victoria Osteen doesn't mind standing right up next to Joel and taking the authority he takes. Uh, Gloria Copeland, same thing. Now, you don't see my wife up here preaching with me because it's not right. But they don't mind that. They just reject it. And they reject the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. Why is it just in the last 30 or 40 years that this prosperity gospel, God's just revealed that He wants everybody rich and He wants everybody healthy. Why is it just in the last 30 years this has come out? Why hasn't the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years, the Martin Luther's and the, and the John Calvin's and, and the Augustine's, why didn't they understand this truth? Why did God hide it for that many years just to reveal it now? 
They don't ask that question. They reject the teaching of the church for 2,000 years and put themselves above it and say, we have new revelation. God has given us new truth. God spoke to me. And you need to listen to what I'm saying. Anytime any man stands up before you, a woman stands up before you, and they claim new teaching, teaching that's outside the teaching of Scripture, teaching that the church has not accepted, or for 2,000 years, you need to say, now why would God wait and reveal it to that guy? Why wait this long to reveal it to that guy? Why not to Paul? Why not to Peter? Why didn't Jesus say it? I mean, if this health, wealth gospel is true, then Paul missed it. Because Paul said he knew what it was to be shipwrecked and to go hungry and to go without. Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head. He said, foxes have holes, and, but I don't have a place to lay my head. Jesus was homeless. Then he missed out on this prosperity gospel. None of the original apostles were rich. None of them died rich. None of them were after money. So, if this prosperity gospel is true, how have the Christian leaders of 2,000 years of church history all missed it? How many were martyred because of their faith in Christ? They missed it. So we must take the time to judge the prophets, judge the teachers that we hear on TV, that, whose books we read, that we listen to on the radio, on the internet, because there is a great danger of false teachers. The Scripture continually warns us, and in our day with so many ways of information being put out, the danger is greater than ever. Are you testing those you listen to, those you read? By God's grace, we must. Let's pray. We do welcome you, and I'm glad that you have taken the opportunity to listen to a sermon on our Internet. And I want you just to know that uh, everybody in the church is not like me. Uh, I have these fellows up here, our leadership team. Uh, this is Filiberto Medina, who is our Hispanic pastor. And our Hispanic congregation meets every Sunday evening at 6.30. This is Paul Kumar. He is our Minister of Community Connections. Uh, and to my left is Mark Baker, who heads up our Reformers Unanimous Ministry, which is a Christian addiction recovery program that meets every Friday night at 7 o'clock. So if you live in the Mableton area, uh, and it doesn't matter what, race you're from, it doesn't matter your cultural background, I want you to know you are welcome at Westside Church. This is where everybody is somebody and Jesus is Lord. Hope you'll join us soon. Thank you for being with us for this message. Each week, Dr. Stewart gives practical applications and ways to live out the Word of God. If you would like more information, please take a moment to view our website at wbcfamily.org. That's wbcfamily.org dot org.